taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined with Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Welcome aboard, people. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm glad to have you all along with us. Uh, let's welcome the, the always prepared uh, Brian Chilton. <laughs> hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. How you doing, brother? Doing good. Doing good. Hey, we uh, we uh, cruise through uh, the part two of our Christian history or church history, um, and we're going to break into into three uh, part three. Uh, last week we. Uh, covered and got into some Martin Luther and we got into some uh, Calvinism and Arminianism and we talked about the daisy on the Arminian side and the and the tulip on the on the Calvinist side and and uh, we even got into some uh, Molina um, some some kind of stirrings of that and uh, so I'm curious to see where we go today yes yeah, so we're uh, looking at um looking at the great awakenings to the present time and 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 I've got to be honest with you here it's we're looking at a lot of different information as we have in the in the past two podcasts and we're, we're probably going to skip a bunch of stuff but here is really in my opinion where we see where the rubber meets the road uh, because a lot of the things that we deal with today in modern denominations come out of these disputes that uh, come from early America, even prior to America, and uh, some of the movers and shakers during during this time. So l- let me first, there was one thing I, for- I failed to mention last week that, I, that as we're really focusing on the development of denominations especially, um, one denomination that emerged that isn't quite Catholic and isn't quite Protestant is the denomination known as Anglicanism. And this is going to, to develop into Episcopalianism. Uh, some people even call this Catholic light, uh, in, in a manner of speaking. But Anglicanism, <laughs> this began in 1534 when, uh, when the Pope refused to grant King Henry VIII an annulment. And so King Henry VIII basically said, well, if the Pope's not going to grant this, then we'll split off and form our own church. And so, and so they did. So it's not. It, it again is is in a midway point, not quite Protestant, uh, as you see the reformers, but not quite Catholic. Uh, Anglicans believe that uh, truth is revealed by Scripture, and that's one of their most important beliefs. They still hold to the Catholic creeds, and we as Protestants would hold to some of the creeds, like we would hold to right. the Apostles' Creed and and uh, the Nicene Creed and, and things of that nature. Um, but they would also hold to Christian tradition, appreciate the tradition that we have um, as Christians. Now, for right. Anglicans, the highest position is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, 
they become highly notable in the American colonies, especially in Virginia. Uh, so we're in North Carolina. The Virginia, uh, the state just to our north is Virginia, and Virginia was a highly Anglicanized state in the early development of uh, of the nation, and so they really had a stronghold in Virginia, um, and that's why guys like George Washington uh, was. Uh, Associated or, or associated with Anglican churches, I believe in Charleston he went to St. Michael's Church when he visited uh, Charleston, and so I believe that's correct. Uh, you know, I may be wrong about that, but he did he did associate with many uh, Episcopal churches and Anglican churches. So they had become highly notable in American colonies. They were Catholic and Reformed, and they held to what they called Anglican divines, which are theological writings of the Anglican priests. So. Anglicanism is going to be a major player uh, in the development of of the nation, especially as they they're, they're going to have some interactions with different denominations, and so um, that that's one of the issues. That's that's one of the major players. A lot of the denominations left England to come over here because they didn't feel the freedom to worship in England, and due to the Church of England. And so um, this would be this would create spats in the early American colonies. Now another period of time we need to mention is, uh, and this has a, a bearing on our modern time, is in through the 17th to 19th centuries, especially 17th century, is ca- called the Age of Enlightenment. And this yeah. is a pl- time when uh, guys like uh, David Hume and many others would elevate reason uh, over revelation. And so they basically held the idea, uh, the ideology that human beings could rationalize all things. And so uh, e- even today, this this gave rise to uh, uh, scientism and things of this nature that stemmed out of that movement. Um, so in 1638, um, a guy by the name of Roger Williams and John Clark, uh, they came over to uh, America, to early America, and they founded the first Baptist church in America in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, the Baptist church grew out of Puritanism and um, the Separatist movement, and so they arrived here. And so I mention the Baptist because it, it, there are multiple versions of Baptists. Um, and, and the history is kind of unique and interesting. So we're not going to just focus on Baptists, but there are a, little tw- a lot of twists with the Baptist movement that, that we need to mention. So Baptists appeared in the American colonies in the early 17th century from settlers of England, and they emphasized the following beliefs, the following four beliefs. One is they held to the priesthood of all believers. Uh, they believed that uh, every person is a priest unto themselves, and what that means is is that if you have the blood of Christ atoning your sins, then you can go freely to the throne of grace. You don't need to have a priest intercede on your behalf because Christ is the high priest and he intercedes on your behalf. So they also believe in the autonomy of the church, and that is that the church is self-governing and doesn't have to be governed by a higher board or a higher um, um, entity. So uh, a lot of Baptist churches, a lot of Congregationalist churches will emphasize the autonomy of the church. Believer's baptism is another major thing that uh, early Baptists emphasized, and that is that uh, a person shouldn't be baptized until they have received Christ 
and that's when they were baptized. And also they highly emphasized the separation of church and state. This came out of a lot of the problems they faced in the Church of England, or with the Church of England, and so they emphasized saying that the government should not interfere in church affairs. Now that didn't say that the, the, the church couldn't have a say in the politics or in the government, but the, the state should not dictate what the church can and can't do. And so that became a major issue for Roger Williams and the early Baptists. So you also see this early separation of Baptists. Uh, in fact, it's interesting, the first Baptists came out of, uh, we mentioned this a little bit last week, the first Baptists were called the General Baptists, and they developed in 1609. And they developed from the theology of separatist movement, some Puritanism, and uh, the Anabaptist movement. General Baptists believe in the freedom of the will, which make them more Arminian or lean more Arminian in their persuasion. John Smith and Thomas Hellwes uh, began the General Baptist movement, and Smith was more radical of the two. Hellwes actually started the first Baptist church on English soil in 1611, about the same time that the King James Version Bible, or the Authorized Bible, as it's called in England, was, uh, was translated. Uh, now, interestingly... General Baptist started in 1609, but there's another group called the Particular Baptists developed in the 1630s, and they developed from the teachings of a guy named Henry Jesse, William Kiffin, and John Spilsbury. These guys were more Calvinistic in their approach. So already in the early Baptist movement, you see two branches forming of Baptists, one who emphasized more free will of the, of the person being a little more Arminian, and the other being more Calvinistic. Now, you can't say they're completely Calvinistic because they didn't believe in infant baptism, and the Armenians weren't completely Armenian in in, uh, in that either, but they're, they, they're the leanings that you find in both movements. Um, so they held to a Calvinist, the particular Baptists held to a Calvinist notion that Christ died only for the elect. And, and interestingly, they surpassed the general Baptists in size during their beginnings in England, and, and this basically came out of the separatist movement and kind of a sectarian stance that they took. But anyhow, uh, Blunt and Kiffin were two of the constructors of the regular Baptist movement. Now, it's interestingly, of the two sections of Baptists uh, originated out of two different locations. So they, it wasn't like there was one movement that split into two. These are actually two separate movements that eventually come together in, uh, in different denominational movements, which is quite interesting. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is, uh, interestingly enough, would be considered a particular Baptist uh, who, who uh, grew out of that movement. But Spurgeon is an interesting guy. He holds to predestination. He holds to Calvinist notions. But he would pray prayers like he would say, God save the elect and elect to save some more. So it's almost as if he had this idea that, uh, that there was freedom of the will, but he held, held Calvinist notions, which is, is really unique. He's a really unique, really powerful preacher that. Yeah. And so then you move. Yeah. Sorry, did you have something there? No, go ahead. So then you move to the Revolutionary War and the French Revolution, and this uh, this is going to emphasize um, uh, freedom of societies, freedom freedom of the citizens. This will happen in the late 1700s, uh, but um, but but uh, around 1730s and 1740s, there is something interesting that happens. We talk about the moral depravity of the nation now. Right. But this isn't the first time that's happened 
in this nation. There have been several times in times past where where the nation has gone through times of moral decay, moral depravity, times where the light of God has not shone brightly with many individuals. Um, and, and such was the case in the 1720s and even going into the 1730s. Um, but then God rose up some individuals who brought about a great awakening. And this is called a great awakening because this was a massive revival that took place uh, all across the colonies. And, and during this time, you see guys like George Whitfield, who lived from 1714 uh, to 1770. He's an English evangelist who made five tours across the American colonies. Uh, he was an associate of Wesley. He made the other colonies aware of each other, which was very helpful even in the development of, of the nation as we have it. So he, he not only spread the gospel, but he was able to spread news from colony to colony. And he, he brought about fervent preaching, ecumenicalism, where he's focused on the Church of Christ, not just a denomination, and evangel evangelistic zeal, where he really was, was preaching the word strongly. However, he parted ways with Wesley over an issue, of, even with, again with the Calvinism thing, Calvinism, Arminianism thing, and that's what that what uh, that's what drew a wedge between the two of them. But uh, they were eventually able to um, to uh, to uh, work out their issues and things of that nature. But but they did part ways as far as on pre being on preaching tours and things of that nature. But again, it come down to again the Calvinist Arminian debate. Uh, also, you have during this time George Wesley. I'm um, excuse me, John Wesley. Uh, he's a little bit older than Whitfield. Uh, he lived from 1703 to 1791. Uh, really interesting guy. He's an English Anglican priest, theologian, and revivalist. He attended Oxford University. A really intelligent guy, and he formed holy societies. and um, And he was a guy who emphasized the holiness and holy living. Um, he emphasized sanctification. That a person that a person is justified before the Lord, but they are are continuously sanctified, and they need to strive to to cooperate with God's will in that sanctification process. Um, due to the methodology that John Wesley used, these holy societies eventually became uh, what is known as the Methodist Church. Uh, Methodist comes from the methods that he used. So he's staunchly Armenian in his theology. He did differ with Arminius, as we mentioned last week, over the issue of whether an apostate could regain salvation, could be forgiven again. Um, Wesley often dealt with inadequacy. Uh, he often felt as if um, his heart wasn't right with God early on. Um, he, he, um, you know, he was always unsure of his salvation, it seemed like. But then on May 24, 1738, that, ex that changed. Um, he, uh, he had an experience that changed his life. Now, well, before this, um, he, he was on a ship with G German Moravians, and, and the ship was going through a bad, nasty storm. And uh, Wesley was terrified. But these German Moravians were calm, you know, acted as if 
there wasn't a care in the world. They said they knew their life was right with Christ, and if they lived, you know, they lived yeah. for Christ. If they died, you know, they're going to go to heaven. They were calm while he was frantic. And so this did something to him. So on May 24, 1738, he had an experience that changed everything. He described the event in his journal. Uh, it, this happened at Aldersgate Street. Uh, where he felt the warmth of the Holy Spirit. So he writes, this comes from his journal, and I quote, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that had taken away that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And so from that point on, he he was very firm in the assurance that he had in 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 the salvation found in Christ. And so Curtis, I'm telling you what, this guy was a preaching machine. Yeah. He was a circuit yeah. rider who who rode over uh, traveled over 4,000 miles annually on horseback. 4,000 miles. And it said that he preached over 40,000 messages in his lifetime. Yeah, yeah I, I heard that it was like, uh, I forget, um, and, I, and I forget for stepping in on this. No, you're fine. But, but it, uh, it was uh, like 10 hours a day. Yeah. Or, or something like that. I mean, the guy was a preaching machine. I mean, how annoying. I mean, I know, you know, today we're having to record um, our, our services because we were doing them live, and um, unfortunately we were having internet problems where the stream wasn't really good. It was going in and out. So we decided to start recording them to have better quality, you know, video and quality of, of sound. And so I did the, uh, I pre-recorded the Bible study for tonight, and then I pre-recorded the message for for Sunday. So I was I was busy preaching and teaching for two hours straight, and I know my voice was getting hoarse after that. And I was I looked over this to think he's preaching that much. How in the world did he keep his voice? <laughs> well, that and, and there was no uh, audio equipment. Exactly. <laughs> He had a, boister, a boisterous voice there. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. It, yeah. It, so he also has a brother, Charles Wesley, he wrote, who wrote several hymns. Uh, Charles and John both were very spiritual individuals. It said they spent three hours every afternoon studying the Bible and other devotional material and praying all the while. So they spent hours in prayer. And, um, man, that really speaks to me about, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's hard enough finding enough time to do daily devotions, you know, much yeah. less now he's spending three hours doing daily devotions and and uh, just an amazing man. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Then you also have Jonathan Edwards who was part of this movement. He was born in 1703 to 1758. I'm actually taking a an independent study about Jonathan Edwards. Uh, we'll be beginning here in a couple of weeks, doing some reading ahead of time. And it, this he's an interesting guy, very intelligent man. Was Jonathan Edwards a theologian of the revival? He was a graduate of Yale back when Yale was focused on divinity school education. Uh, served as an assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. 
Stoddard, he was known for his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, this is interesting, Curtis. I, I read something previously about this. Jonathan Edwards wrote out his messages and read them from the paper. And so he, he, he wasn't... So, so he would write them down, and he would basically read, and he and he spoke in a real monotone voice. But when he preached the message, "Sinners in the hands of an angry God," it said that people in the church they felt as if they started tapping their feet, raising their feet off the off the floor because it felt as if their their feet were burning in the flames of hell. The spirit oh got a hold of people so strongly. Uh, Edwards emphasized man's total total dependence on God. Um, it said that the Holy Spirit broke out in 1734 and saved over 300 people, bringing them to Christ in one year. Amazingly, 100 of which of whom came to Christ on one Sunday alone. I'm wondering if that's the message where if that's the service where he preached the message, "Sinners in the hands of an angry God." I'm not sure. But uh, the revival didn't last extremely long. But when when it was going, man, the spirit was on fire. I literally he was he was bringing people uh, left and right to salvation using these great men and many others: Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, and uh, George Whitfield. Three remarkable men, and uh, right. uh, you know, interesting. Now we were talking before the podcast, and and you would think that with the moving of the Spirit, that everybody would be on board with that, right? You'd think that. Right. But it wasn't. <laughs> it, during this time, you had individuals who were pro-revivalists, and they were saying that the, the light of God is shining forth and in, 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 in enlightening people, bringing people to faith. Well, these were people who were called new lights. They were pro, pro-revivalists, in favor of the Great Awakening. But oddly enough, there were people who were against these revivalistic meetings, against the the Great Awakening. These guys were called the Old Lights. These were anti-revivalists. And so, goodness. (laughs) Yeah. You think everybody would be welcoming a, a revival of the proportion of the Great Awakening, but unfortunately, that just didn't happen. Uh. And so you have individuals developing into two groups called the Regulars and the Separatists. The Regulars were urban churches who shied away from revivalistic fervor. I guess they felt that it wasn't eloquent enough to be revivalistic or evangelistic in that regard. And some of your more suburban and rural churches, they, they, they became separates or separatists, or basically separates, I think is what they call them here. Uh, they welcomed the move of God. And the first separate church formed in 1743 at the First Baptist Church of Boston from the preaching of George Whitfield. So from the preaching of these, these revivalists uh, form individuals who are welcoming the move of God and pray that, uh, that such a thing will happen. Well... S- Eventually, some of the individuals from this movement move south from New England to North Carolina, especially one guy by the name of Shubal Stearns. He moves to North Carolina. He and Daniel Marshall preached in what's called the Sandy Creek area. This is in the central lower portion of North Carolina. And so they they emphasized the freedom of the will. They emphasized the moving of the spirit. They emphasized evangelistic emphases. So out of this grew three groups. 
the old general Baptists who adopted Arminianism and they eventually became what's known as free will Baptists. Regular Baptists adopted extreme predestinarian views. Uh, They were anti-missions. They were anti-revivalists. These individuals in large part, or at least a group of them, became primitive Baptists who are extremely deterministic, extremely deterministic in their in their viewpoints. And isn't that uh, aren't they part of the the, the the group or the people that um, um, don't even have uh, uh, church signs out because they don't want to draw anybody that's not uh, that's not chosen? Yeah, exactly. And and I don't want to I don't want to become town too harshly on them because you know there's some good people I know who are part of this denomination. Although I am anything but a primitive Baptist, I even had some family members who were part of this movement, and and it's very there's some very peculiar beliefs in my opinion in this group because on the one hand they hold to this extreme view of predestination. Some primitive Baptists I've heard coming from the lips of some primitive Baptists they'll say that you you can't even know if you're saved. You can't even know that you have insurance of salvation. Um, they don't believe in paying the preacher anything. But what they will do, interestingly enough, is that as they're shaking hands with the preacher, they'll give him like a hundred dollar bill or something like that uh, for his for his efforts. You know, they don't believe in paying the preacher, but they'll end up paying him. It's not a salary, but they'll pay him. You know, out of pocket. Um, but yeah, they don't have any music. They have no music whatsoever. A lot of a lot of primitive Baptist churches will only meet once a month because they share a preacher uh, with several different other churches, and so they'll have basically an all day service on that one day a month, and then they'll have Sunday school classes and things like that. But um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a strict, highly deterministic viewpoint, and um, and that actually flows out of this regular Baptist movement, which comes from the old lights who were anti-revivalists in the Great Awakening. So the interesting thing is, is we we don't just happen to be these different denominations. There actually, there's a history behind these things, which is, which is fascinating. And then you have the separate Baptists. They are, uh, they lean more traditionalists. Uh, they uh, are more, uh, they have more of a middle ground between the two extremes. And so this actually develops even more. Um, in Charleston, South Carolina, which was a highly, it's still today an urban, rural urban community, huge seaport there. In the Charlestonian tradition, you have churches that were more, that were high liturgy, that they uh, were, were high liturgical. Uh, they were more Calvinistic. They were urban. Uh, they had, um, they, some of them were even were anti-missional to a degree. And they placed a high value on education. The Sandy Creek movement initially started out where they were Armenian, evangelistic, strong commitment to revivalism, and uh, did not affirm education. Well, this broke into two different groups. The Sandy Creek traditionalists were Armenian, evangelistic, and affirmed education. And the Sandy Creek revivalists like the tradition, are like the traditions, except they are suspicious of any education, and are more likely to be King James only in their in their um, in their mentality. Um, oddly enough, Trevin Wax he, he's he's identified seven forms 
of modern Southern Baptists, and I think this not only applies to Baptists, I think this, uh, this applies to people of many different denominations. So he mentions there are those who are fundamentalists. These are hard-lined individuals who have more in common with the independent Baptist fundamentalism than, than with the SBC. Revivalists, true heirs of the Sandy Creek tradition, they're suspicious of education. Traditionalists are heirs of the Sandy Creek theology, but they have a strong commitment to evangelism and revivalism, uh, and also affirm education. Orthodox evangelicals are, are an in-between group that look uh, that, are, that look to Carl F. H. Henry, Billy Graham also as models. This group wants to develop a theological course correction, a commitment to the full truthfulness of the Bible, serious intellectual and cultural engagement while interacting with all who would claim to be great Orthodox Christian traditions. Um, the Calvinists, this comes from the Charlestonian tradition, uh, they have much in common with the evangelical group, but uh, but they are more focused on um, the, the Calvinistic perspective. Contemporary church practitioners, these are a group of pastors who wanted to find new ways to connect with the culture. This includes Willow Creek model, Saddleback, Missional, and even some emergent church types. And then culture warriors uh, is another group of conservatives who desire to engage the issues of culture and society. And so what he's basically saying is you see these different groups. He identifies as an Orthodox evangelical. I would go between a traditionalist and an Orthodox evangelical myself. Um, but again, all of this didn't come about by happenstance. There's a deep history that brings about a lot of these different viewpoints. Um, and then in the 1790 to 1840, you have the Second Great Awakening. Uh, during this time, you see the rise of what's called post-millennialism. And um, we need, I need to take a pause to explain what this is. This isn't a viewpoint that's in favor much anymore. In fact, it, uh, well, let me just go and explain it, then I'll tell you why it's not in favor anymore. Um, post-millennialism doesn't believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ. Post-millennialists believe that things in the culture are going to keep getting better and better and better, that we usher in, the, the church is going to continue to grow and expand, society is going to get better, and as, as the culture is aligned with, with uh, the grace of God, that will enter into this utopia, so, so to speak, and Christ will return and heaven will, will, will come on earth. Maybe works in opposite day or something, but I mean, <laughs> well, that would be more in line with the premillennialism as, as I am. You know, premillennials yeah. say that things are going to get worse and worse until the time that Christ comes. Right. Um, right. Postmillennialists say that things are going to get better, but there's a couple things that happened in the early 1900s that puts an end to that perspective, and that's the right. two world wars. When that happens, the whole idea that the world's getting better just flies out the window. It, it just it doesn't. There are some people out there who still hold the post millennial views, but they're certainly not in the majority. Um, right. So this comes out of the Second Great Awakening. Things are making a turn. You see the rise. Uh, the, the United States is formed by this time. Things are getting better for people, and so that's where you see the rise of this post-millennial viewpoint. Also during this time, uh, during, between 1790 and 1840, Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians all see substantial rises in their attendance. 
Things are getting good for these denominations. Things are getting good for the church during this time. But then over time, you begin to see the splits that occur. Uh, you, you see things take place. Uh, you know, on earth, nothing good lasts forever. It doesn't seem like, unfortunately. We know in heaven right. it will last forever. But uh, unfortunately, this time comes to an abrupt end. Uh, we see uh, different splits that come out of this time period. And so going back to the, the, the Baptist movement, in 1814, there's a group called the Triennial Convention. Now, a convention is an organization where uh, the churches actually govern the practices of the denomination. It's not a top-down organization. It's a bottom-up organization. And so they de- they developed this convention that would meet every three years. That's why they call it the Triennial co- Convention. And they focused on believers' baptism, congregational autonomy, separation of church and state. Um, interesting, during this time, 1833, there was uh, problems that emerged with the New Hampshire Confession of Faith in 1833, which seemed to affirm a form of predestination while also affirming human freedom. And some of the Calvinists of the Charlestonian tradition took issue with it as they held more to the Calvinist Philadelphia Confession of Faith in 1742. So there are already rumblings during this time. Also during this time, there are individuals who grow these missional societies where they where, where what they'll do is they'll train missionaries and send missionaries out from the denomination itself. And so they'll make sure that that they don't have to worry about raising funds or stuff like that, that they'll have from the denomination itself that are sent forth uh, into the world. Well, around the 1840s, something happens and um, which causes a major rift in the Triennial Convention. And that is, a, that is a, what eventually becomes the Civil War, uh, quite honestly. The Civil War develops uh, due to a problem between the North and South. Um, there are issues um, that, uh, so the Civil War goes from 1861 to 1865, but there were problems that emerged between North and South even before that time. Um, there were issues regarding slavery. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I'm part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but this is a black eye. Uh, to the, the to the origin of the denomination, and the Southern Baptists have since apologized for their stance during this time. Um, the Northern Baptists rejected slavery and founded uh, and and said we should not allow slavery to take place. Well, especially among those of the Charlestonian area and in the eastern part of the states, you had these large plantations now. Those in my area, they weren't wealthy enough to have plantations, and so uh, they were more Moravian settlements in this area. But in the eastern part of the state, in, in certain sections, they were wealthier, and they had these plantations. So these wealthy plantation owners didn't want to give up on that. So the North and South split, and the Northern Baptist uh, group became the American Baptist Convention. I think they're called the American Baptist Churches USA now. The Southern Baptists grew into the Southern Baptist Convention, 
And and uh, again, it's unfortunate that how this uh, started recently, not long ago, they had their first uh, black president or African American president, however you say it, um, who served as a president of the SBC. Again, the SBC has apologized and recanted their position as they held early on, and uh, it's an unfortunate beginning to uh, the denomination. But the SBC is focused on missional work. They've been focusing on evangelism. I think they've been influenced by the Sandy Creek tradition, quite honestly, where they focused a lot on revivalism, evangelism, and that really helped the denomination grow. Uh, They developed the International Missions Board, which sends missionaries over the world, across the world, and the North American Mission Board, which is here in the mainland, uh, the United States, Canada, and uh, Mexico. But even in the SBC, there are splits that happen. Now, you and I were talking off off the air about certain situations that you encountered. And I think this might help explain some of the beliefs that some Baptists hold. Um, there was a belief that developed in the 1760s. Um, and, it, and it was propagated by a guy by the name of Alexander Campbell and also Thomas Campbell. Um, and he lived from 1763 to 1854. Alexander Campbell was a Presbyterian minister who had been con- who become convinced uh, that the of the accuracy of believers' baptism, and Campbell held that the ancient gospel had been obscured by human traditions, and he held that faith was merely intellectual assent. So you just basically believe something and you're saved. Uh, baptism completed the process. He also held that the actual church has existed since the earliest times, but has been obscured by the different denominations and traditions of humanity. Thus, Campbell rejected paid staff at all churches. He rejected missional societies, something that the SBC wholeheartedly agreed to, instrumental music, written confessions, and the use of titles. James R. Graves from 1820-1893 and James Madison Pendleton took up the mantle of what is called landmarkism. Landmarkists, and this became really associated with independent Baptists, landmarkists believed that missionaries should be sent by churches, not societies and denominations. Landmarkists also believed that Baptists are the only legitimate churches in the world. Now, when I say independent Baptists, that's not true of all of them, okay? That's a blanket statement referring to some but not all, certainly not all. So Landmarkists believe that Baptists are the only legitimate denomination in the world. So they later divided from the SBC and became influential. Um, so Landmark Baptists do, don't even believe in allowing other Baptists of other Baptist denominations to fill their pulpits. For instance, I knew, I, I was telling you before, I knew uh, uh, well, my grandpa was involved in a situation where, um, where he, he knew a guy who was part of what you could probably call a landmarkist church. And and um, he, he invited the guy to come preach at his church, but he wasn't permitted to come preach at the other guy's church. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. because this viewpoint that there's this separatism between... Now, they, they won't call themselves landmarkists, you know, most likely, but that, right. that belief is there. And it's not a new belief. It goes back to the 1760s. Um, and so, um, so they, they develop this ideology that they're separate from this. Now, the interesting, the Churches of Christ 
develop out of a disagreement that they had with the Campbellites in the mid-19th century. The disciples of Christ also stem out of this, this disagreement as well. So churches of Christ are, are very comparable to Baptist churches in many ways, except that they do believe uh, that uh, baptism is, is, uh, is necessary for, for, salvation. for salvation. Now, not all, not all Church of Christ individuals may believe that, but that's generally speaking, and, and please note, let me just say that the, the information I'm stating today is generalized information, just talking about how these, the history of this. This certainly doesn't mean that everyone who's part of these different denominations hold every dot and tittle of these, uh, or jot and tittle of these, uh, of these beliefs. So it, it may be that they hold different things. Uh, different belief systems. So don't just assume that if someone's part of a certain denomination that they agree with all the things that we're talking about. So uh, this is just talking about the origins of these different denominations. So I, I want to give that disclaimer as we go along. Right. But then we, we come to the last uh, movement that uh, that we'll really, really talk about tonight. And we could really talk a, a long time about... This, this movement, and it's called the Holiness Movement. And this develops in, um, well, really even before the 19th century. There were, uh, there were individuals, this, this grew out of the Wesleyanism, out of, Methodist, out of the Methodist Church. As the Methodist Church grew and developed, many held that the denomination had lost its focus on Wesley's message of sanctification and concern for all people. Within these churches... Uh, they uh, they emphasized a return to a focus on the holiness of God and a return to focusing on living holy lives. Now again, there were some disputes and spats that happened between different individuals. Uh, but the difference is is that as they focused on the holiness of God, they began to experience the gifts of the Spirit. Now in certain holiness churches, this didn't last a long time. It lasted for a little while. And then it kind of faded and waned. But that is until about 1906 at the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, many holiness churches abandoned the practice uh, at this time, but they reappeared with great vigor at the Azusa Street Mission of Los Angeles in 1906. The believers experienced what was called a Pentecostal fire, where an outpouring of the Spirit of God was experienced. And the movement was experienced by individuals of all races in the area and even crossed out of the Wesleyan tradition into Baptist and other denominations, uh, interestingly enough. In 1914, the director of a Pentecostal publication called for an organized gathering of those who believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And from this movement, the Assemblies of God was formed. And so... And, and your church is associated with the AG Church, right? Is there yeah, anything you like? And that's, well, and that's and that the AG Church actually is not associated with the UPC, which is actually you know it noted that it, as a United Pentecostal Church, but that's that's a fringe side, and uh, um, in some ways leans uh, very uh, leans leans uh, heretical. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What, what what beliefs do they do they hold that we, and this is talking about the U the UPC uh, church, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And if you start digging into it, um it's it's 
uh, it goes deep into the thoughts that they are uh, oneness. They are the only only true church. Uh, that to uh, to be saved or to be part of the church, you have to be uh, fluent in, in in you know speaking in tongues and and have that have that baptism of the spirit, and you have to be um, uh, baptized in the spirit to be. Uh, to be part of that church and so um it's something that i haven't really uh, dealt or uh, dove into deep enough with it to be able to give a solid um definition between the two but i do know that the upc actually started and the ag split off of that and said you know these guys are leaning very heretical and and we're we're leaning in on uh on more of the fundamentals. One thing I need to say too is, as I've mentioned, um, and just for clarification's sake, I've I've mentioned a lot of the independent Baptist church. It's also important to note that that the churches became independent out of different for different reasons. For instance, Jerry Falwell Sr. Uh, and uh, he he was a part of a liberal Baptist denomination. Uh, early on, and so he started off as an independent Baptist, but it wouldn't even though he calls it a fundamentalism. His focus was more on the fundamentals of the faith. Now he preached from the King James, but I don't believe, from what I understand of him, that he was King James only. Uh, I think some of the Northern Baptist independents, uh, Northern Northern independent Baptists, are more like what you'd consider non-denominationals. Um, and even in our area, I have a friend of mine who was who used to attend a uh, an independent Baptistic church, which would be considered more of a non-denominational church than what uh, the landmarkist type of mentality would be. So there are several nuances in that that you have to make in and through this because, unfortunately, as we talk about Protestant denominations, there's two there's hundreds of splits that's happened. And over over time, right, and that's all just due to the fact that people bring their presuppositions into the the reading of the scriptures or the the idea of how how a church should be ran, and and that's and and so that's where you form these splits, and and that's why it's important to understand that um, you know we can all have all have a um, all have our own uh, idea of where you know what how how a church should be run or how a congregation needs to meet etc but but keep in mind and be sensitive to the fact that if we're if we're if we're all under the blood of Christ and we believe in the in the core elements of those of the faith um, we're still we're still within orthodoxy absolutely very well said Curtis and, and and that's the thing that I hope that our listeners, as we've looked through the um, the history of the church, we've covered a lot of material on these three podcasts, and and we might even can look at uh, challenges that the modern church faces on an additional podcast if we wanted to go that route. But sure. as we've looked at a lot of the, the, the splits and nuances has happened, instead of holding that landmarkist position, I hold the same position you do that. There are believers in all of these different denominations that we've covered, um, and and I think they're good people. And just because a person 
is part of a denomination doesn't mean necessarily that they agree with everything with that denomination. But well, I guess what I'm trying to simply say is I believe that the church is far greater than denominational lines. Oh, absolutely. And, and I believe yeah. that there are, are children of God in, in all of these different churches that we've discussed. Uh, there have been some denominations have done good things. Some denominations have, have chosen to go down bad paths. Even the SBC, which I'm part, it started off under the really bad conditions. I mean, they took a stance that they shouldn't have taken. Uh, right. But there again, you know, I, th- I think you could find nuances with with all the different branches we've talked about in fact like john smith you know there's some things about him early on that even though i would hold more to his his uh belief in the freedom of the will i don't think i would agree with him on some of the other issues he held so there are different there are different nuances that we have to work through but like you said the most important thing is we're part of the body of christ And, and I, w- I would close by saying one more thing. At the outset of this, we had mentioned about the four circles and, and about the most important circle being the, the little blue circle in the middle, which are the fundamentals of the faith. And, and as you mentioned a while ago, a lot of these differences in opinion come from more opinions on, on the applications of the interpretations of the essentials more than they do necessarily on essential doctrines. Yeah, and you kind of even, if if you were even, boy, you could open up a can of worms with this one. If you were even to go into the Hebrew side of it and understanding um, what the Hebrew and Greek mean more than um, more than what actually what we've been discussing even here, um, the depth that uh, you could have in division there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It, it's it's even like a you know I, I saw a comment some some but um, between Dr. Purser and and a, and a student uh, or former student Liberty he graduated with his um, uh, THM but they were talking about how to parse out a, a passage of scripture in Greek and uh, talking about what was it circumcision or was it Gentiles and it could go either way and so yeah you're right if you go into that aspect of it you could have further divisions on several different things indeed mm-hmm. yeah and it's and it's kind of uh, interesting when you start talking about the church in in america the, the modern church in america that we see coming through this with the baptists and the fundamental baptists and 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 the ag and stuff you see how um at the same time the the English or the the over in England and, and on in the other countries um, th- how the church changed um, almost uh, differently in, in a different way by being more managed by um, by government the church was actually yes. being run by the government. That, and that's a good point. And unfortunately, as you look across Europe, you see many empty cathedrals that used to be very prominent places of worship. Now that is defunct, that they become historical centers and things of that nature. But they're no longer necessarily worshiping the Lord. They're just there as a as a as a reminder of the past. Right. Yeah, and and, and I and I think that comes down to when now when you um, if you're actually talking or 
visiting with some of the European uh, people over there, you can actually talk to them about um, Christianity or, or being a believer in God, and they'll say, well, I'm a member of this church. They're not necessarily saying that they're a believer in God or a yes. believer in Christ. They just say they're a member of X church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which makes it which makes it um, almost uh, a breeding field for uh, evangelism. If if you could have the right um, the right kind of conversations and the right kind of people and 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 have have the have the right heart to listen more when people are talking about that. You start ask, asking questions. And as you ask questions and you listen to their answers, you open up doors to be able to speak into that and and actually find out where they're actually sitting. And and you know, Curtis, I, I really think that um, I mean there are some who have hardened their hearts against the gospel for sure, but there are many people out there who are hungry and thirsty for the word, and 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 have these questions that we deal with here at Bellator Christie, and. Um, People who are very interested in spiritual matters, even though even in America, while we're losing cultural Christianity, spirituality is still there, and people right. are asking questions about God. They're asking about Jesus, and I think it's up to us as believers, as First Peter three fifteen says, to tell others about the hope that we have within us, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. I, and that's what we try to do here, right here on this podcast, right. Yeah, and, and I think it's important that that we emphasize, you know, um, our our time in prayer, our time in the Word, and and actually getting it from what God has for us, and, and not and not taking it from somebody else, not taking it as um, you know what this guy says or you know your friend Jim down the road says. You take it from <laughs> what God's Word says. That has been a big stumbling point, I think, for many churches uh, uh, around the area. And, and that's one of the dangers, I think, that um, it, it's a benefit that everybody interprets the word, but it's also a stumbling block because if if you are simply going by what someone down the street says, uh, then you're, you're holding that person's interpretation. In like manner, I, I think sometimes... Certain denominations focus too much on one theologian's interpretation, rather yeah. than as what you were saying. What does the Word of God say? What What does it say on the matter? And so, uh, I think you're right. Yeah. Yep. It's a plumb line. It sure is. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been good, Brian, and we thank you for the for all the information that you dug up there. So we at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending uh, time together with us, uh, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on Bellator Christie. Until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. 
The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at barnesandnoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.